Our text tonight is the very beginning of 1 Peter. And I don't want to say too much as an introduction except to quickly note who the author is and what exactly he's the author of. Do you remember his name? He was born Simon, right? And we know that Jesus had nicknames for at least some of his disciples. We know that he called James and John Boanerges, which means thunder sons. It's an awesome nickname. I think I would love to have that name, the Thunder Sons, right? But what did he call Simon? He called him the the Greek word for rock, right? He said that you are the rock that I'm going to build my church on. And we don't have to shy away from that passage as Reformed believers just because that's been uh, misread, misinterpreted, misapplied, and abused, right? Uh, The whole first half of Acts is the Holy Spirit working through rock, through Peter, Right through the one that Jesus established his church, one of the 12 actual apostles. He was a bold man, right? We love to make fun of Peter, um, and understandably so. He constantly is sticking his foot in his mouth, but he's a bold man uh, with the Holy Spirit. You know, Apart from the Holy Spirit, he denies Christ three times, but after the Holy Spirit rushes on him in Acts 2, you remember, he stands up boldly and proclaims the gospel, and that's the apostle that we get to listen to tonight. So that's the author. And what exactly is he the author of? Right? First Peter is the first of two epistles written by Peter. But what is an epistle? It's just a letter, right? But I'd like to remind us just really quickly that in the first century, they didn't have all these different forms of communication like we have today. I think uh, of a, a text message as a little bit more informal, perhaps more personal. Uh, some of you maybe don't text at all. Maybe some of you, that's your only form of communication that you know of. Um, But an email, on the other hand, is maybe a little bit more formal. It can still be personal, although there's uh, a little bit of a a greeting and a salutation, perhaps a little more structure to an email. And then we still have tons of other forms of communication that we won't go into, but we, we can call people on the phone now. We live in a crazy world where we can see each other's faces at a great distance. The reason I bring that up is because this letter is just as personal and intimate as a text message. But it's just as structured and orderly and thought out as any great business letter would be. And just so we don't get the impression that these two things are not compatible, ladies, would you prefer a man to put a little bit of forethought and planning into a date? Or would you rather him say, no, I'm just going to wing it because that way it'll be more personal? Right? Would you not put any plans and forethought into a wedding in the name of it being more personal? No, of course not. So this letter, written by the apostle Peter, rock as Jesus called him, this bold man, was inspired by the Holy Spirit and has written this personal yet beautifully structured and organized letter for us. But before we attempt to read and to preach and to listen to God's word, Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for help. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, it's so easy to take it for granted, but Father, we ask that you would illuminate this text before our eyes. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. We ask that you would impress it upon our hearts so that we would not simply be hearers of your word, but that we would be doers of your word, Lord. Move our affections to love you more. Help us to see 
Christ in this text. Help us to see the glorious work that our Trinitarian God has done for us in bringing us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Listen to God's word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. All flesh is grass and all its endurance is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. I have uh, three brothers who are like heroes to me. They're um, a good bit older than I am, and they're much wiser and more mature in their faith than I am. But I like to hear stories uh, from when they were little, before I was born, uh, before they were so heroic. And uh, our youngest brother, Samuel, he uh, was a great athlete. He still is. He's the best athlete of the four of us. Um, So he was able to play up with his older brothers. But he didn't always understand what was going on. So when they were playing baseball, it would be his turn's team to hit. Everybody would be uh, in the dugout waiting to bat. And Samuel would frequently be found in a tree when it was his turn to bat. He would just wander off and climb a tree, so they'd have to go get him out of the tree to come bat. Well, one time when Samuel was rounding second base, uh, he was coming towards third base, and my dad was the third base coach. And you have to understand, uh, my father is a very cool, calm, and collected man. He's a passionate man, but he doesn't ever show anger by raising his voice. And so as Samuel's coming to third base, he's you know, running as fast as he can, and my dad's swinging his arm like a windmill trying to send him home, and he's yelling, go home, go home, trying to send his son home to score a run. Go home, go home, and poor little Samuel just breaks down and says, I don't want to go home. <laughs> just wanted to play baseball. As Christians, though, we get confused about where home is. What is our home? What does that even mean? We find ourselves asking the question, are we there yet? Our text tonight shows us the condition that we're in as elect exiles, chosen foreigners. We are not home. This world is not our home. But thanks be to God, our text also shows us how the work of our Trinitarian God, how each of the three persons of the Trinity brings us home. Let's look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And who's he writing to? To whom is this letter addressed? To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And who are these elect exiles? Now, in the original context, this is the Jews of the diaspora, right? Where we get our word dispersion. And he lists off these five places, and they are elect exiles. That word exile is such a strong word, isn't it? But that characterizes the situation that these first century Christians have found themselves in. 
And we might say chosen foreigners. I love um, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the extended allegory that paints this wonderful picture for us, that this world is not our home. We are on a journey. We are pilgrims in a strange and foreign land. But as John Calvin helpfully notes for us in his commentary on this passage, he says this isn't just about the first century Christians who were in the dispersion. He says, here we have a call to all the faithful pilgrims. So we see that some of us are in Pontus. Some of us are in Galatia, Cappadocia. Some of us are in Asia. Some of us are in Katy. Some of us are in Louisiana, Mississippi. Not only are we not home, but we're not even all together. It makes our situation very difficult. But our text shows us that the work of our Trinitarian God brings us into the right relationship that is our home. So how does the Father bring us home? Look at the very beginning of verse 2. Our journey as elect exiles, our pilgrimage as chosen foreigners is, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter shows us here that our pilgrimage is according to plan. It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so it's not a surprise to God. This isn't simply an accident. From our viewpoint, our pilgrimage is because of sin. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were kicked out of the garden because of their rebellion against God, and we fell in them. Our condition is because of sin. But from God's perspective, from God's point of view, this is all according to his foreknowledge. This is according to plan, and it does not catch him off guard. So what does the word foreknowledge mean here? It actually has two dimensions, or, or two layers. So let's look at this first layer. Uh, this first layer, or first dimension of uh, this word foreknowledge, is that God the Father has a predetermined destination for his chosen foreigners, for his pilgrims. We, we see that this predetermined destination is already mapped out. We know where we're headed, and God actually has mapped out our journey before there was even earth to map it out on. What an amazing thing. He can see the dangers up ahead. He can see the path before us. And he can lead us in the, in the direction that we need to be headed. And so this should give us great comfort to remember that, that God not only knows all things, but that he has our destination mapped out. You know, I'm, um, I'm really bad with directions. It's interesting because the Lord's actually blessed me with a decent sense, sense of direction, but the problem is I don't ever pay attention to where I'm going, and it causes problems. But because I know this about myself, whenever I get in the car, if my sweet wife isn't with me to tell me where to go, I'll take out my phone, and I'll ask Siri, and I'll get Siri to take me where I need to go, which is great some of the time. Other times, it seems that Siri is sleeping, or she didn't hear me correctly, or she doesn't know the area very well yet. Uh, so I'll just be driving down the road, and Siri will say, Arrived. Your destination is on the right. And I'll be on a mile-long bridge. It's like she wants me to drive off into the river. God is not like that. The foreknowledge of God the Father extends to the entire earth. He doesn't ever get confused. He doesn't ever get lost. He's never sleeping at the wheel. He knows exactly where we are. And he knows exactly 
where we're headed? Does it give you confidence to know that God is in control? Does it give you confidence to know that he knows exactly what you're going through right now? He knows what you're going to be going through tomorrow, this week. He knows exactly where you're headed. And if God knows where we're headed, if he understands all things, unlike Siri, who gets confused sometimes, wouldn't it be silly for us to doubt the directions that God gives us? If he tells us to take a left, why would we instead take a right? If he tells us to make a U-turn, you missed your turn, you need to make a U-turn, why would we say, you know, I think I'm going to go a couple of lights ahead and then maybe take another, another route. I think I can plan this out for myself. And that's exactly what repentance is. It's taking that U-turn as soon as we realize that we're off the path. This is a call to repentance, to follow the path that God has marked out for us. So that's the first layer of foreknowledge. That's the first dimension. Uh, This foreknowledge means that he has a predetermined destination. But it even goes deeper than that. The second layer to this word foreknowledge is predetermined love. And we see that because the word knowledge in the Bible. Have you noticed how the word know gets used in the Bible? When Adam knew his wife Eve, she conceived and she bore children. When the Lord tells Israel, you only have I known, what's he saying? Is Israel the only nation on the earth that God the Father is aware of? Of course not. As one translation puts it well, I think, it says, you only have I been intimate with. So we see the foreknowledge of God the Father is his loving, relational, intimate knowledge beforehand that he has set on his chosen foreigners, his elect exiles, his pilgrims. And I think uh, the closest thing that we have to this uh, on this earth is, is to think about the, the four love that expectant parents have for their little baby. The, the baby is in the womb. It's not even fully grown, hasn't been born yet. They haven't formally met the baby, and yet there's just this sense of inexplicable love that can't be separated from from even not having known the child yet. That's the type of love that our Father has for us. He knows us in and out. He knows us to the core. There's not this distance of pregnancy that he doesn't see us or doesn't know us yet. And so, in one sense, that should give us a sort of reverent fear to know that God knows all things. He knows everything that I've said. He knows everything I've done. He knows everything I've thought and will say, do, and think. In the future. But we don't have to be scared because the knowledge that he has of us is this loving, intimate knowledge, like we're talking about, of his children. So if we just trust in his son and are adopted into his family, then this this foreknowledge that he has for us is like the foreknowledge and planning that a parent has for their child. As parents, you begin to, to make plans for your children. Plans to prosper them, not to harm them. You want them to be uh, flourishing. You want them to grow in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You want them to be successful. And that's what the Lord tells his children in Jeremiah 29, 11, when he says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So this means that not only do we need to trust God as an all-knowing one who has mapped out all the directions and will never get lost, 
it's not only that he's unlike Siri and that he never makes mistakes, but he's also unlike Siri in that he's not unrelational with his people. Now, I have Siri call me my king. I like it when she tells me, of course, my king. You know, I tell her to call my wife, calling Rachel husband my king. But that's not an actual relationship. Siri and I do not have a relationship. She has no clue what she's saying. The Lord has a relationship with us. He doesn't just respond to commands. He gives us commands, but he gives us commands in love. What an amazing thing the foreknowledge of God the Father is. Every step of our pilgrimage is a step, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But not only is our pilgrimage according to God the Father, it's accompanied by the Spirit and his work of sanctification. It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and it's accompanied by the Spirit's sanctification. Look at the second part of verse 2. Our journey is in the sanctification of the Spirit. It's in, or we might say by or with, the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, sanctification is just one of our Christianese words uh, that we hear a lot in church. But if you stop and think about it, the way that Peter words this is brilliant. Okay, what is sanctification? Well, I like to say that pizzification is the act or process of making pizza. So sanctification is just the act or process of making someone sanct, sanct. What, what, is that, what does that mean? It just means holy. Some of you may have heard the, the Latin for, uh, for Holy Spirit, spiritus sanctus. So what this is saying is that it's the Holy Spirit who holies you. It's the sanctified spirit who's sanctifying you. It's who he is. It's part of who he is and what he does for his people. And so being holy means set apart. Now let's look at this being set apart from two different angles, from two perspectives. So the first angle is that sanctification means being set apart from the world. It's being set apart from the world. The Holy Spirit calls us to be separate as he is separate. And this is what God says in Leviticus 20 when he says, You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. We've been set apart from the nations. As believers in Jesus Christ, elect exiles, chosen foreigners, pilgrims. We've been set apart from the world. We've been made different. We don't look like, talk like, walk like the world. At least we shouldn't. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever shown up uh, to some sort of social gathering, party, and you find out once you've arrived that you're terribly underdressed or overdressed? Or maybe it's a costume party and you came in a suit or a dress and you had no idea. You just feel so uncomfortable and and out of place. You you feel so, so different. It's a very uncomfortable feeling to be different. And that's what the Lord is calling us to. He's, he's calling us not to embarrassment, to, to look different. The, the sanctification of the Spirit is not about clothing, right? It's about our actions. If only it were as easy as to just wear some different clothes to be a Christian. But the Spirit sets us apart by convicting us of sin that everyone else says, it's no big deal. What, what's, what's the big deal? Everyone else is doing it. The Spirit says, no, 
This is my loving command. The Spirit sets us apart also by calling us to do things that the world will tell you, you're wasting your time. You don't need to do this. Why, why are you doing that? We're called to be holy. And this doesn't mean just being weird for the sake of being weird. We're called to be holy by being set apart from the sinful desires of the world. Being set apart from the temptations of the world. of Satan and of our own flesh. So that's the first angle or first um, perspective that we see that sanctification means being set apart from the world. But it also means being set apart to God. It's not just being set apart from something. It's being set apart to someone. The Holy Spirit brings us to himself. It means being set apart to our God. Listen again to what God says in Leviticus 20, that verse we just read. You are to be holy to me, because I, the Lord, am holy, and have set you apart from the nations. Why? To be my own. Our holiness is not just for the sake of being different from the world. He sets us to be apart. He sets, up, sets us apart to be with him. Um, some of you may, um, may eat your food in a certain way. Uh, my wife, uh, I love the way that she eats her food. Uh, maybe some of you are like this. But whenever she has uh, several different things on her plate, uh, she likes for them not to, to touch and to get enmeshed and entangled if there are certain things that don't mix well. So I think of um, for Thanksgiving. She always likes to, to separate her sweet potatoes, the sweet potato casserole. If it's going to be on the plate, it needs to be separate. Not only is it going to be separate, it's going to be eaten last because it's the good stuff. Right? You want to save the best for last. You can't just mix in your green beans, no matter how good they are, with the sweet potatoes. It doesn't work. Well, that's what the Lord is doing for us. He's separating us, not just from green beans, but from horrible, detrimental things. He's separating us from the sin of the world so that we would be delectable to him and that he would be delectable, desirable, delicious to us. That's what sanctification means. It's not just being separated from the world. It's being called to him. It's being called to a personal relationship and union and communion with our God. So, should we all then become hermits or monks, nuns? What's the call here? Are we called to, to not live in the world? No. Obviously, the Lord is not calling us not to live in the world. It's not calling us out of the world. It's calling us to be separate from the world, right? This is what we say all the time. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. And that's tricky. That's difficult to do sometimes. But think about the example that Jesus laid out for us. He ate with sinners. He spent his time with sinners. But he never picked up any of their bad habits in the name of evangelism, right? So we need to do the same thing. We need to be spending time with others outside of the Christian community, whether we're at work or at school or wherever we are, we're going to come across non-believers. But what should we do? Should we try to be like them, to try to be cool? Or should we try to be accepted by them? Should we try to adapt? We said this world is not our home. Does that mean we need to try to adapt and accommodate to it? No. On the contrary, We need to be called to be light and salt into the world, no matter where we're called to be. 
We're to be in the world. We need to have a major presence in the world, but without being of the world. One of my favorite Christian hip-hop artists, uh, he has a call in one of his songs to the Christians. He says, don't be scared to be different. We shouldn't be scared to be different because he who is in us, he who is with us is greater than he who is in the world. So we don't have to worry what the world can do to us. And so we see that our pilgrimage is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It's accompanied by the Spirit and his work of sanctification in our life. How does our Trinitarian God bring us home? Our pilgrimage is accomplished by the Son. It's accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ. Look at the third section of verse 2. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. What does for mean here? The English word for has a lot of meanings um, that it, it, it can mean. But here it's, it's used to show um, an end in mind. What's it for? Where are we headed for? And literally, it means into, right here. We are headed into the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So, in other words, this is our destination. What is our destination? Well, Peter explains our destination in two ways. The first way he describes our destination is by calling it obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, he seems to be saying here that the purpose for which we were foreknown, foreloved, the purpose for which we are being accompanied by the Spirit in his role of sanctification in our lives, the purpose is so that we can be brought into a state of obeying Christ. Do you see how important obedience to God and his word is? Obedience to Christ. This is part of it. But I want us to think for a second, who does the obedience belong to? What Peter's actually saying here, now that's certainly part of it, but Peter is saying here the obedience of Jesus Christ. That is where we're headed. Our destination is into the obedience of Jesus Christ. In other words, our, our obedience belongs to him, but our lives belong to him because of his obedience. Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father when he lived on this earth 2,000 years ago, is what's in view here. It's the work of Christ that we're being brought into in this text. So what did the obedience of Christ look like? Every time that Jesus was reviled, was hated, was mocked, he didn't respond by murdering them. He didn't even respond in hatred. Every time he saw a beautiful woman who would want to tempt him, He didn't come into temptation. He he was delivered from that, and he never once looked at a woman with lust. He never took anything that didn't belong to him. But he worked hard, and he gave freely. He always told the truth, even if it was to his own detriment. He always kept all ten commandments. Our pilgrimage has already been accomplished by Jesus Christ. And so, seeing the obedience of Christ should make us want to follow him. He said no to every temptation to sin that came his way. That's a man I want to follow. 
Sometimes we don't know why God wants us to do certain things. We don't understand all of God's law. We don't understand all of God's word. God, why would you want me to take a left here? This doesn't make sense to me. I can't see the big picture. Jesus fully trusted the Father. He said, Lord, if there's any other way, take me a different route. Any other way. But not my will. But your will be done. Oh, that we would be able to say that with Christ. Not my will. But your will be done, Lord God. And truly mean it to the depths of our souls. And the second way that Peter describes our destination near the end of verse 2 makes this point even more clear. And for sprinkling with his blood. Not only did Jesus live a perfect life of obedience to the Father, but he also obeyed to the point of death. It's not just his active obedience of living a perfect life, but his passive obedience, obedience to death. But do you see the graphic imagery of what Peter says here? For the sprinkling of his blood. The other day, I saw here in the church in, in the bathroom, actually, what looked like a big blood splatter. It was on the floor there, and it was on a Monday morning where Classical Conversations was being held. And so I was immediately worried that maybe one of the children here is seriously injured. They're, they're bleeding out. And so I wasn't even sure if it was blood, but just the sight of it and the thought that maybe one of the kids that's running around our church is seriously injured and is bleeding out, seeing this blood splatter on the ground. It turned out, thankfully, to be paint that was very easily cleaned up. But the thought made my stomach turn. Just the idea of the blood splatter. Just one little blood splatter. Isaiah talks about Jesus. He prophesies it before it even happens. But he talks about how disturbing of an image it was to see Christ. The blood splatter. He was so deformed and mangled that you couldn't even recognize him as a human. He, he literally says he didn't look like a son of Adam. Men literally hid their faces from him. He was despised. He was rejected. He was beaten within an inch of his life and nailed on the cross to die for the sins of his chosen foreigners, his elect exiles. He became the elect exile. His destination was hell, so that in Christ, in him, our destination could be heaven. If we simply trust in Christ, if we make that U-turn that he calls us to, if we repent of our sin and we turn to Christ, then we are united to him by faith, and we can have sweet union and communion with him. Look at the very end of verse 2. Grace and peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace come from Jesus. Do you want this last part of the text to be said of you? May grace and peace be multiplied to you? The only way that grace and peace can be multiplied to sinful foreigners is through faith. It's trusting in Jesus and in him alone that we can reach our final destination. This is what it says in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place, not knowing where he was going. The patriarchs acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. They desired a better country, a heavenly one. And so God has prepared for them a city. Trust in Christ, and I'll see you in that celestial city. 
Father in heaven, we long for the day that you return to this earth that is not our home and to bring us to be with you, not just spiritually, but physically. We long for our resurrection bodies to be with you, to be called home. Father, we know that in the meantime, you have blessed us with the Holy Spirit to work his work of sanctification in us by pointing us to the obedience of Christ, calling us to obey him and to remember his obedience and his death, the splattering of his blood for the sins of his people. Lord, would you increase our faith? Would you help us to remember that this world is not our home and to look to you and our presence with you, our true home, throughout this week? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.